and welcome to the Wellbeing and Career World podcast. I'm delighted to be chatting with a gentleman who currently co-hosts the show Happy Hour with Heather and Guest. He writes crime fiction novellas, short stories and volunteers. In 2018, he survived a ruptured brain aneurysm. And I've asked him already before we start recording this, if I have the pronunciation correct, a subarachnoid hemorrhage. He's going to start a clinical men- mental health counselling programme in January 2022. Today, we'll be chatting about brain aneurysm awareness. A very warm welcome to the podcast, Andrew Davey. How are you getting on today, Andrew? I'm well. Thank you so much for having me. No, but my pleasure. Let's get to start. So where are you right now on planet Earth? So I'm currently in Alexandria, Virginia. Oh, nice. That's, that's where I've lived uh, for the last, I guess, almost eight years now. Um, what's what's Alexandria, Virginia like? So if you're trying to picture it in no more than 10 words, tell us. <laughs> well, it's about a half an hour south of Washington, D.C. So it's it, it, it's very similar. It's kind of like a D.C. suburb. Right. And is it quite is it pretty quiet, is it? Yeah, it's it's pretty quiet. Um, it's easy to get into Washington, D.C. Uh, by the metro. So um it's yeah, it's a I I have enjoyed living here. It's a nice area. Um, and have you lived anywhere else in the states? Yeah, well, I grew up in New York City. Uh, that was that's where I spent the first eighteen years of my life, roughly. And then uh, I went to college in New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh, well, very. So I was there for a couple of years, and then I moved back to New York, um, and lived in a bunch of the outer boroughs. Uh, so in Queens. Uh, for a little while. Um, and then I spent uh, two years teaching abroad in Asia. So I was in Macau and Hong Kong. Well, did you go um, to the casinos? I did. Well, it's funny because <laughs> I was uh, I was in Macau on a Fulbright scholarship to teach. Uh, right. So technically, we were all considered to be government employees. Okay. And it's, it's forbidden to gamble if you're a government employee. So we did go to the casino, but we would only usually go to the restaurant uh, or, or, you know, we would pass through. But, um, but yeah, it was a very, it was an interesting, uh, certainly a very interesting place to be. Yeah, um, it's a bit different from Hong Kong, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's very much, I'm not sure if you've ever been to uh, Atlantic City in New Jersey or uh, Las Vegas. Uh, Nevada. I, I, I would. Have, I've never been to Monaco. Right. But those are the only sort of. Macau is sort of like the destination spot in Asia just to gamble. Right. <laughs> so, it's it's very much geared exclusively. There's really not much else to do. It it had been like a very kind of quiet Portuguese colony uh, right. a long time ago. Uh, so. It's really interesting because all of the signs and all the directions and everything is in Portuguese, um, but all, all the people speak Cantonese. Um, right. And then of course, I was teaching in English, but uh, it's strange because it's very much uh, like a, a culturally Portuguese and uh, an Asian, but like right next door to a five-star hotel that that caters to gambling. So it's it's really. It's a unique place, certainly. And did you pick up, Andrew, any Cantonese while you were there, although you were teaching English? Uh, I did. I When I was in Macau, um, so Cantonese is predominantly spoken in both Macau and Hong Kong, although 
since they both cater to uh, so many foreign populations, everybody pretty much speaks English. Right. So I didn't really need to learn that much Cantonese. Um, and, and it wasn't something that I was really uh, interested in. So I picked up how to say things like good, uh, good morning, good night. Um, I still remember how to say large coffee, please. That was, that was one of the things I made sure. I was really proud of myself when I would, you know, they, anywhere that I went where I would order coffee, they would understand me in English, but it was the <laughs> only chance that I could really practice. So, so do you still know that now, Andrew? How do you say I large do. coffee? Please? Yeah, cafe mgoi. Oh wow! Yeah. Okay, very very fancy. So how long did it take you to learn that? Uh, not very. I mean that that <laughs> because that that one is simple. But if you were to ask me more complex phrases, I probably wouldn't remember anything. Right. Um, <laughs> I had uh, one of my when I was in Macau, I had a roommate who was also teaching there in the same program, and he. Uh, was very interested in learning the language. So every night he would make flashcards uh, right. to remember either phrases or characters. Uh, so he was really dedicated. Um, and I was much more interested in just enjoying myself and going out in the evenings and sort of taking in what the nightlife had to offer. So we, we had very different uh, experiences. But um, what about yeah, the food? That, did you enjoy the Asian food? Oh, yeah, it was great. It's Again, it's it's a unique place because it's it's certainly Asian food, but there's a Portuguese uh, uh, sort of uh, accent to it. So right. there were there were it was a really interesting combination of flavors. Um, and then Hong Kong is you know is a is another uh, great place as well because you can you know it's it's really incorporated so much of the world's. Uh, culture, uh, yes. you know, so you can find everything. Um, but yeah, we would find these sort of little pockets in Macau that specialized in, uh, you know, in re really great Asian food, or, you know, if you, if you needed to get pizza, you could find it, um, you know, or something, some of the creature comforts from home would be there if you, if you knew where to look. I, I used to love New York, or sorry, uh, Hong Kong because of the buildings, because it reminded me, especially at nighttime, what New York was like. And then I'm very interested to know, you, you mentioned there that the first 18 years of your life, you, you grew up in New York. What was that like? Is it like, as we see on the TV, is it quite ex exciting? Is there a certain amount of tension in the city at times because it's so busy? What, what was that like? Well, it's, you know, it's, it, I didn't really have the perspective for it until I left. Um, you know, growing up, I would think about, I wouldn't really think so much about the, the things that were enjoyable or easy to do. Uh, you know, I, I never owned a car growing up. So I was always sort of imagining what it was like to have a car when you're 16 and drive to a house party somewhere or, um, or, you know, all, all of the sort of things that I would have that I had imagined most people would experience uh, in their lives. You right. don't really get that in New York City. Um, you know, there, there's really no backyard uh, or um, you know things along those lines. You know, there's there's like I would go to Central Park. Um, so it, it it's a it's certainly a unique place. Um, I began to appreciate things much more when I was in my twenties, and I had moved back right. and. Um, you know, the ease with which you could get like a falafel at three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Um, 
or, or you know, one night go see a show, uh, the next night see a movie, and then go to a like a, a sporting event, um, and never having to worry about drinking and driving or or any you know any of these sorts of things that you don't really consider um, when you were when you're younger um, right. because they're just it's all you know. Uh, I loved it. It is very fast paced. Um, and I kind of liked that aspect of it when I was younger, uh, as I got older, I, I wanted something a little bit more slower. Right. So that's, you know, eventually that's how I ended up in Alexandria. But, um, and is there much, I mean, is it like we've seen in movies where you said, they said a yellow cab driver, you know, pulling over the side of the road. If you, if you cross the sidewalk and he goes, yeah, what are you doing buddy? And is it, is, is there much community spirit there with, with the general yeah, local population? Well, it's it's interesting because that's all that ever sort of gets uh you know shown on TV or when you think culturally about New York City you think about you know almost getting hit by a cab and all of that stuff happens yeah but that's maybe like 5 to 10% of it you know and the rest of it it isn't uh it isn't really anything outstanding to discuss it's just sort of normal everyday life right. um you know, it's it, there is a certain if you if you've lived in a big city before, you've probably seen a lot of the same things. Right. Um, you know, everyone waking up in the morning and going to work and and you know traveling on the train or or on the bus or something like that. There there definitely is a certain amount of uh, craziness in New York, um, but I think that tends to to dominate every conversation. So. It reminds me when when um, when I, I had a friend of mine who uh, became a rabbi, and part of his uh, process, he had to live in Israel for a year. So I would ask him, you know, are you ever concerned? Because all I see on the news about Israel is, you know, either fighting or 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 protests or something. And he said, Yeah, that's what they show you on the news, but that's not twenty four hours a day, every place you go. Right. So I, I remember thinking that's very similar. You know, when you think of New York, you probably think don't go out at night because you could get mugged or watch out for the, you know, cab drivers driving yes. or, you know, or look out for the crazy uh, Yankees and Mets fans that are going to be going <laughs> to the bar. Um, and they, they, that certainly exists, uh, but it's it's not as big of a factor as as you think when you sort of are looking from the outside. Well, I, I've been a few times now. I have to say, I love it as a tourist. It's such an exciting place, um, uh, especially if you go, to, as you mentioned, a show. You go to Broadway. Um, it, there's just so much uh, excitement there. Just especially as 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 a tourist. So, let's generally move on then to brain aneurysm awareness. So, for somebody an idiot like me, Andrew, what is a brain aneurysm? So you can have an aneurysm uh, you know, all throughout your body for, uh, for, for a brain aneurysm, what I had, it's basically a, uh, like a vein or a blood vessel, uh, bursts. It's kind of like if you were to overinflate a tire, um, and the, 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 you know, the, the tire just blows, uh, you know, a spot in it. So I ended up having, um, like a, a blood vessel in my brainstem rupture, uh, and that that was the cause, but you can have an aneurysm pretty much anywhere, from what I understand. Uh, you know, I, I'm actually not so much an expert 
on the the medical or scientific side. So how old were you then? I mean, kind of take a little step a little bit back then. So did you have any symptoms? Anything that was of a concern that you kind of thought like, you know, my vision no, is impaired or anything? I, so I had actually just turned 40 years old the week before. Okay. Um, and I was uh, at the airport. I was going to take a flight that morning. Um, and I felt fine. I didn't have any symptoms until I got to the gate uh, at the airport and I started to sweat uncontrollably, like I had just run a marathon. Right. And I remember thinking, this is strange. Uh, but I sort of thought, okay, I might be coming down with the flu. Um, you know, I, I didn't immediately go to, I'm about to have a brain aneurysm. Um, and then they called uh, my group to board the plane. And I remember lifting my backpack and thinking, it feels like it has cinder blocks in it. It was really heavy. Right. Um, which again is a red flag. But at the time, I don't think I was thinking that anything really wrong was happening. Right. Um, and then fortunately, when I tried to board the plane, I fell on the jetway uh, and and first responders were able to get to me immediately because, it, you know, I, I was out in the open and I'd fallen. Uh, and that is actually what ended up saving my life, because had I been anywhere else, uh, no, no one would have gotten to me in time. Um, right. So I didn't have any uh, any symptoms or anything. Most people that I've uh, either spoken to who've had a similar thing or that I've read about will suggest that they've had something known as a thunderclap headache, which is supposed to be the, the worst feeling headache you've ever had before. That usually accompanies, you know, the aneurysm. Right. I didn't have that. I, I was very fortunate that none of it was painful. Um, I do remember hearing somebody tell me not to move and thinking, okay, I won't move. Uh, right. And then, and then I said, I can't miss my flight because I was just, I, I, again, I didn't know how bad things were. I just thought how upset my, my family will be that I missed a flight. Right. Um, so the person laughed and said, don't worry, you can catch another flight. Um, Cause I guess they probably knew that this was more of a serious thing. Um, and were you conscious throughout this, Andrew? I mean, you, you mentioned there that you didn't want to miss your flight. I, I, did you have any, like, can you remember anything at all other than just Yeah, collapsing? no, I, up until that point, I remember pretty much every, you know, enough of the details, like lifting the backpack and it being heavy and sweating uh, and scanning my ticket and trying to walk and noticing that the floor was shifting. Right. Like, um, like a year, you know, like I was at an amusement park funhouse. Um, and I remember thinking to myself, instead of thinking, this is definitely strange and I have a problem, I thought I need to gather enough momentum to get onto the plane. Um, cause I guess I wasn't thinking clearly. Uh, right. and then I fell and the person said to me, don't move. And I remember I was fitted with a neck brace and, um, and that's when I said, I can't miss my flight. And then. I don't remember anything after that for the next three weeks. Wow. Um, yeah, I have no memory. Uh, I was an entire, uh, fortunately, I had filled out the emergency contact form 
when I booked my ticket. So right. the airline called my parents and said that I missed my, I had an incident and I missed my flight. Um, and then later on, the uh, neurosurgeon's physician's assistant found my cell phone and saw a bunch of missed calls. So he called my brother who happened to be at my parents' house and let them know what had happened. And, and they were able to, to, you know, either drive or fly up to, uh, to Washington DC from where they were. Um, and then, yeah, the next three weeks, uh, I've, I've, I was up and I was talking to people and I was following instructions, but I just have no memory of it. Um, that, that's amazing. I mean, did, did, I mean, it's obviously a good example of why when you go abroad or you want a flight, it's always good to have contact details. So it was great that they were able to get in touch with, with relatives um, and keep them informed of what was going on. But did you, I mean, leading up to this, and this is going to sound like an ignorant question on my behalf, but did you have any stresses in your life before you, you, I know you're saying you were kind of, you know, you want to get this flight, but leading up to that before your 40th birthday, was there anything that may have created this brain aneurysm or is it just one of those things that it could just happen? Um, I know there, there weren't any major life stressors that would have contributed to this. I, you know, this is usually brain aneurysms like this. Uh, it's sort of like getting struck by lightning. You know, right. you're, there's really, there's, I think a lot of time uh, it can be brought on if you have, uh, from what I've, from what I've read, if you have like a, a very serious cocaine addiction, right. It that's been known to do it. Um, it, it could be hereditary, um, you know, or like myself, I just, I just happen to be a, one of those rare people that gets it. Um, but there, there hadn't been any, I, I didn't have any, uh, symptoms leading up to this, nor had there been any major life events that would have contributed to something like this happening. And I'm not even sure if, if that, if any sort of stress or anything will bring about something like this, it may just be, uh, you know, uh, up to fortune's fate. So when then you, you're getting your medical treatment and you're in the hospital and what did, I know there was a, there was a gap of like three weeks, but what did the medical professionals tell you that you can remember with regards to your treatment and what you can expect in the recovery process? And how long were you in hospital in general? I mean, do you, do you now have to go back to hospital to get checked up? No. I, so I, the first three weeks that I was there, I was in intensive care. Uh, I don't remember. Um, but I think it was pretty much just, uh, making sure that I would be in the clear. Um, right. you know, I was still there, there is something called a vasospasm, which I learned about, which is, uh, it, it can be like a complicated problem after the surgery. Um, so they wanted to make sure that, that I was sort of out of harm's way. Uh, and then I stayed in the hospital for another week and a half after that doing inpatient rehab. Um, and that's when sort of, I, I became cognizant again, my, you know, I, I was able to function and I, I have memories. Um, so that was, there wasn't really a lot of, um, 
anticipation with this is how uh, things may go from here on out, or this is sort of what trajectory your recovery is going to take. Um, most of it was just immediate, let's have you do these exercises so that you can learn to walk again. Um, and we'll have you do these speech therapy exercises to see if your processing has been uh, inhibited at all. So most of it for the, for the week and a half that I was in the hospital, I didn't really think about the future so much or about what the recovery would be like. It was mostly just following directions. Um, and, you know, I, I needed a cane to walk at the beginning uh, and somebody held a guard belt, which was basically like a, uh, an airplane seatbelt that I'd put around my waist in right. case I, in case I teetered or started to fall, they could, they could write me. Um, most of the time, any physical activity I did was in like a 40 second burst. And then I would, uh, either be in a wheelchair or I would have to sit down because I just didn't have the endurance. Um, I had double vision, so I, I wore an eye patch for a little bit. Um, so the first week and a half really was just like, uh, go to physical therapy, try these exercises, uh, go to occupational therapy, do these exercises, um, and speech language therapy and do these and, and just sort of follow these exercises. I think, uh, in the beginning, I had accepted that something really traumatic had happened and it would take a long time to recover. Right. But, but I didn't know what that would look like. Um, and then when I left the hospital, I stayed uh, in my apartment uh, and my mother stayed with me and she would take me to various appointments. Uh, so I did outpatient, th you know, physical therapy and speech therapy. Um, and that's when I began to sort of try to adjust. Um, I think there was for a really long time, I imagined that at some point my old, I would keep healing, um, you know, over time, I, I, within the first year, I would say I was able to walk without the cane. Uh, I was able to start exercising again. Um, my double vision eventually went away. So Physically, I was able to sort of um, recalibrate pretty quickly. Um, and even now, the, the physical limitations I have are, are more of a nuisance than a problem. Right. My, my, my vision still takes time to settle if I move my head um, and my balance isn't very good. But, um, but I've incorporated that into just what life is like now. Um, what ended up taking the most time to feel comfortable is sort of the emotional adjustment afterward. Um, I kept thinking that at some point I would feel like my old self again, uh, that, that somehow my old life would come back. Uh, one day I would just feel, you know, like I had had before the aneurysm. Yes. Um, and that didn't happen. Um, so that, that took a while to sort of realize that there are going to be elements that uh, I still have from before the aneurysm. Like I still live in the same apartment. I still have uh, friends in the area that I see, um, but much of it was going to be new. Um, and, and not allowing that to be overwhelming 
was sort of the, the major focus. Um, and that, that took the longest time to, uh, to kind of get comfortable with. Can I ask you, Andrew, I mean, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get my own picture here. So say, for example, you're now going through recovery stage and you're, you're, you're trying to, again, kind of start your movement, your speech. How was that like, I mean, you mentioned the emotional side there, but how, I just can't picture that where a couple of weeks before then you were able to, you were walking normally, you were talking normally, you could move your hands, you could do everyday normal functions. How, how did your brain cope with that at that time to think, right, what, is it like, I want to move my, does it, is, your, is, your, is your mind thinking, I want to move my hand, but it's not doing it. I want to move my leg, it's not doing it. Is this, is this the picture I'm getting or is it totally different? Well, for me, I was really fortunate that uh, physically I didn't really have uh, that difficult of a time. You know, it was, it was, it was sort of like when you, when you begin to exercise, it just, it'll take time for you to, you know, develop your cardiovascular and put on muscle. It was the same type of thing. Right. So I could do everything that I had wanted to do. Um, it just took time to build up, um, you know, like I would, uh, start by maybe walking around the block, uh, and then within a week, maybe I could walk around the block twice without sitting down. Uh, and then in two weeks I could walk around the block three times. Uh, and then, you know, it was just sort of, it was easy to chart the progress physically, um, because there were always indications that I was improving, uh, for example, when I, what ended up happening is I think I was so focused on recovering physically first that the emotional recovery didn't really begin to happen until after I had made enough physical progress. Right. Uh, and a lot of it was um, sort of reflecting on the fact that many of the priorities I had had before the aneurysm weren't priorities anymore with regard to how I felt about them. Um, so like, for example, I had, uh, before the aneurysm, I had, uh, been dating a lot, uh, you know, hoping that, okay, maybe one day I'll meet somebody and I'll settle down and we can either get married or start a family or excuse me, just, uh, just have a relationship. Um, And then after the aneurysm, what I realized was that wasn't as important anymore. Um, I also had difficulty making emotional connections with people. So I sort of realized that um, trying to get into a relationship with someone would probably not be the best idea right now. Um, So that that took a while to kind of feel comfortable with, okay, well, if that's no longer a priority, what is a priority, um, you know, which is what actually led me to uh, what I'm doing now as a student trying to pursue a counseling degree. Um, but yeah, that the to go back to your question, physically, I could always sort of follow my brain's commands. Um, it was more of like an existential, what am I going to do now type thing right. that, became, that became more difficult uh, to deal with. 
Has your, you mentioned the dating thing uh, was kind of like a priority before you had the aneurysm. I mean, have you gotten to a stage now where your talk process, you kind of feel that could be a priority again? Uh, I, I, it's, you know, it's funny. I, I wrote a, um, I hope you don't have a girlfriend who's going to be listening to this because oh, no, 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 no. the answer no, I, then would be wrong. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's interesting because even after the aneurysm, I did, you know, I, I did go out on a couple of dates. Um, and I wrote about this in a memoir, uh, that I, that I wrote a few years ago, um, that, uh, it be, you know, it sort of became like an episode of a, of a sitcom where the focus was, okay, when do I bring up that I've had a ruptured brain aneurysm during our date? Um, oh, right. okay. You know, do you, do you suggest maybe you want to split the nachos for an appetizer? Oh, by the way, <laughs> I need to, you know, so, so uh, that how did was, that go though? I mean, did you bring that into the conversation? Not yeah. I, I, eventually, what I realized was uh, I would see if if there was a, a a natural way, an organic way to work it in. I would bring it up. Otherwise, right. otherwise I wouldn't. Um, and you know the the it was always in my head. Uh, rat, you know, everyone was always very nice once they once they you know if I told them or they reacted in a very uh, in a very cool way about it. Um, I, I think I couldn't sort of get out of my own way. Uh, right. And, and then it became something where I realized, you know, at some point, maybe I'll meet someone and, and I'll settle down and it'll be great. But as of right now, it's just not, it's not something that I need to have happen. Uh, so I'm so I've sort of put it on the back burner. Um, you know, we'll if there's one thing I've learned about the last couple of years, it's that nothing has met my expectation for how it'll go. Right. So I'm sort of just uh, leaving it open as yes. a, as a you know as a possibility, uh, as with everything else is. Um, so, but uh, yeah. So I mean, it, it was. It was interesting because I had been in a relationship and then uh, that didn't work out. So I was like, you know what? This is important to me. This is something that I'd like to to eventually establish again. Um, and then after the aneurysm, I kept trying to sort of make it work. And I yes. realized that I was I was sort of forcing the issue, that I was making it a priority when it when it wasn't one. Right. Um, so, and, so, uh, so kind of like instead of going with the flow of seeing how it works out, it was it, it was kind of in the way. Yeah, I I kept thinking, um, you know, okay, well, if if I I remember there was a quotation that I really liked from a, from a book and then a movie called Into the Wild, where one of the characters uh, writes in the the bindings of a notebook of his happiness is only real when it's shared. Yeah. And I remember really, fo I don't necessarily agree with that now, but at the time I remember thinking, okay, that is really profound. So I want to find someone who I can share my happiness with. And then that became sort of a driving point. Uh, right. And then it wasn't until, you know, within the last six months or so that I've realized 
I can be happy without finding someone to necessarily share my happiness with uh, in that regard. Right. Uh, but that took that took a lot of time to sort of assess. That was the um, that was the sort of the one luxury of the last year and a half. So I when when I had do, I'd been doing the outpatient uh, recovery. Um, and then I, since I had been teaching beforehand, I thought I would get back into the teaching profession. So I went back to my old high school and worked as a sub for a few months. But, um, but at the, at the time that at that job, I'd been working with students who have, uh, learning disabilities and attention deficit disorder. Yeah. So they really need somebody who's at a hundred percent of their game. And I just wasn't at a hundred percent of my game. So, uh, so I backed away from that. And then in March of 2020, I was about to start a job where I would be a tutor. Uh, so it would be a little bit, uh, of a slower pace in a, um, you know, in a, in a much more calm environment. Uh, at a tutoring center near where I lived. Uh, and then obviously the COVID pandemic hit. So that job was canceled. Um, so I, I moved back in with my parents for a year, which turned out to be a silver lining because I could really reflect on what I wanted to do um, yeah. and what were going to be the new goals and how, how would it be best to keep adjusting. Uh, and that's when I sort of figured out pursuing a counseling degree would probably give me the, the, the drive, you know, and, and things that I had wanted to pursue. Um, I'm sure your parents are delighted for you to be home anyway. I mean, mom and dad always love us home. It was really, yeah, it was great. I mean, I, I get along really well with them, so it was nice to be home. Plus, uh, I could, uh, do a lot of the, uh, the chores and errands to make things easier for everyone. So we ended up having a really great uh, time together uh, where, you know, I could lift heavy things if they needed to, I would make coffee in the morning. Um, You know, plus we would, we would get a chance to spend time together. So it was a really nice, you know, opportunity. Can can I ask Andrew, when you were going through, uh, the treatment, and obviously, I'm aware that treatment can be quite expensive in America, or insurances, or health insurance. How how did you manage that side, but also the work side as well? Because unless you have a very um, considerate boss or employer, it's quite difficult, especially if you're trying to recover and you have the pressure of an employer to say, "Like we need you back." I know you explained there that. You had a couple of opportunities of of, uh, of of work, but at that moment in time, when when you had the aneurysm, I mean, how did you cope with that? Uh, well, what's interesting is that I had actually just quit my job, uh, my teaching job. I was going to try to go back to school uh, to get a PhD. Um, so I had applied to a bunch of schools. Um, actually in Europe, uh, coincidentally. Um, and, and then the aneurysm happened and I didn't get into any of the programs, but at the time, 
Uh, I still had insurance through my previous job at the school. So that turned out to be a really fortunate thing because that took care of, of most of the major medical bills. Um, and then again, I was fortunate enough when I moved back in with my folks that I didn't have to worry so much about, uh, you know, the obligation of, okay, what am I going to do today? Yes. Um, and then it, it wasn't really until I kind of figured everything out. I, I, I've been very fortunate in terms of things, uh, the domino is all lining up well, uh, so that when they were knocked over, uh, everything was still okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was, it, it, it was, it was difficult in that there were a lot of times where I kept expecting this is what I should be doing, uh, or this is what I would imagine somebody in this situation would do, uh, rather than kind of just seeing, okay, well, what's the best thing for right now? Um, I don't know if that answers any of your questions. Yeah, yeah, no, it does. It's it's it, it's just trying to put. It's you know you've you've been through through so much, and here you are talking on this podcast, and you're still very positive, and that's that's something that you know that's great character on your behalf that you're still moving forward, you're doing your thing, and we're going to talk a lot more later on about your podcast and and what what holds uh, out for you in 2022 and beyond. And you mentioned there you're going to do a clinical mental health uh, counseling program. Just another question I just want to ask you, just for any listeners, I mean, is, or are you aware of, I mean, is a brain aneurysm preventable? That, you know, I know you mentioned that you're not a medical doctor or, but have you heard, I mean, when, when the medical yeah, professionals it, say to you, look, get yourself so, checked out or. Yes, you can, you, if, if you have a history like if there's a family history um, or if you're having, uh, you know, debilitating headaches or anything, you can, you can get a screening um, and they do, uh, they can tell if, if you have an aneurysm there. So I had a ruptured aneurysm, which means that it burst. Um, right. A lot of people have aneurysms that are unruptured, um, but they can, they can be screened. Um, and now they can, uh, there are a couple of treatments. It can either be something called coiled or clipped, or uh, it can be dealt with um, through surgery. So I would recommend if you, especially if you have a family history, it would always be a good idea to just get checked out. Um, you know, you, you hear stories or I've heard stories in uh, support groups of people who say, you know, I had a bad headache and I didn't think it was anything. Um, and then I went and I, so I'm not, I'm not, I'm certainly not saying that if you have headaches, then that's a symptom. Yeah. Um, but, but mostly if you, if you know that there's a family history, it would probably be a good idea, a good idea to get checked out. Um, and then if, you know, if you have persistent symptoms uh, that you can't explain, um, then, you know, then that's probably, but yeah, aneurysms can certainly be uh, prevented. Um, what what is then, Andrew? What it was? I know mentioned at the beginning of the show is a subarachnoid hemorrhage. What what is that specifically? Is that because your aneurysm you said kind of burst? Yeah. So a subarachnoid hemorrhage, I think, is when you have a bleed that's in a certain area of the skull, um, right. or the you know the I. 
I was, again, I was, you know, I keep saying I was really fortunate, but I, I was in that everything, most of the things that could have gone wrong uh, went wrong, but were also uh, somehow, you know, e either fixed or they didn't end up having uh, a debilitating problem that lasted. Um, right. So, uh, yeah, so a subarachnoid hemorrhage is like a specific type of uh, you know, bleed either in the skull or on the brain. Um, I wish my, my brother's a doctor. So if he were here, he'd be able to explain it to you uh, <laughs> much better. No, but, not, not um, at all. You've done, you've done a, you've done a great job is, is then I'm looking at your website here and be very nosy at the moment. I think first okay. of all, we'll chat about, uh, your plans for, I mean, we're actually in 2022 now, um, but you're 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 participating in this in this clinical mental health counselling program. So, what is that, and what do you hope to gain from it? So, uh, the the counselling profession is very similar to uh, being a therapist or a psychologist. Um, you know, I think these days the the words are interchangeable. Um, what I would like to do is be able to help people who've had traumatic brain injuries, because I feel like there's a lot of um, support uh, for physical recovery. Um, yes. There just isn't as much support for emotional or mental recovery during that period. Uh, so I thought that because I've experienced something like that myself, I could offer a unique perspective to help people through. Um, and that was my, that was sort of my goal. Um, I, I felt like uh, I, I'm still doing a lot of the things that bring me fulfillment and enjoyment. Um, yes. You know, I'm, I'm doing the, the Happy Hour with Heather and Guest podcast with my friend Heather, and I'm writing. But I also needed or felt like I needed to do something that would help other people. Yes. Uh, in, in order to kind of feel more fulfilled and complete. So and how long Andrew, does this take this uh, qualification take? Is it like a couple of years or a four year yeah. course? Yeah. So I, I'm doing the program as a full time student. So hopefully it will only take two years. Um, so I'm hoping to be practicing, you know, by maybe 2025, uh, 2024, 2025, some term, you know, but um a lot of my, a lot of the students in the program do it part time, so it'll probably take them maybe five years. Uh, but, um, but yeah, it's basically. I think, uh, you know, a counselor would be someone you would go to uh, to to get help if you're having, you know, if you're struggling with emotional or mental uh, difficulties. Um, you know, who would hopefully be able to help you put yourself back on track. Uh, in a productive way. Yeah, no, I think it's a brilliant idea. And as, as you mentioned already, if you've, you've experienced it, not many people could, can, you know, we can all go off and do qualifications, but you, you've, you've been there, you know what the recovery is like, and uh, you can firsthand actually tell somebody or help somebody who, who's going to go through in the future. So I know I think it's a, it's a brilliant thing you're doing and, and, fair play to you now we're going to go on to okay so now we're going to go on to do yeah the happy hour podcast with heather so who is heather so we, who who is she <laughs> okay so it, what's interesting is i've actually never met heather personally oh wow um, okay yeah well the, you know the pandemic has uh done some interesting things uh so i 
um, I had reached out to a marketing and PR person in music uh, because I, I wanted ideas on how to promote some of the books I'd written. Um, so I became friendly with this guy uh, whose name is Matt Bacon. Um, who still works as a marketing and PR person in the United States, although he has clients throughout the world. And he was giving a uh, marketing seminar. Um, and I ended up having the opportunity to enroll in the marketing seminar. Uh, and Heather had also enrolled in the marketing seminar. Um, right. So we became friendly with each other. And one of the tasks we had to do in the seminar was we had to create a Facebook group. Uh, so she created a group called the happy hour with Heather and guest, which originally was just going to be a place for people to, uh, you know, post articles about mu about bands and musicians and talk and listen to new music. And then, uh, as the pandemic got worse and musicians were unable to play live, um, they would live stream perform into the group so they would they would set up in a rehearsal space where they lived and they would stream the performance wow um, so it shifted very you know it shifted from kind of a place to post information into like a, a venue basically um so heather asked if i could help with that and that's how i got involved so the first year or so of the group was pretty much just a chance to um showcase musicians who were struggling during the pandemic. Uh, and then we also included every so often we would interview musicians. Um, and then more recently, as the pandemic, uh, you know, as musicians started to be able to play live gigs again, there were going to be fewer performances. So we decided to uh, shift the focus and make the show more about music reviews. So rather than doing live performances heather and i talk about you know contemporary bands that we like we we analyze albums we make recommendations um and you know neither neither of us necessarily have a music background so none of the things that we talk about are usually very technical um we're coming at it really from a fan's perspective um and what would be your favorite music what's what's what would be some of your artists that you like well, she and I are both, we're both huge fans of heavy metal. So that's usually what we focus the show on, right. um, which is, again, if you, when you, if you, if you were to meet either of us or speak to either of us, uh, most, neither of us really fit the cliched sort of look and sound of a heavy metal fan. So it's, it's always, you know, it's always interesting. Like I, I, I probably look like I should be you know, um, modeling on a J crew catalog, uh, you know, wearing a, like khakis and a button down shirt. Um, so it's, it, it's a lot of fun though. I mean, that's, you know, that's, I think, um, you know, these days it's really important to be fulfilled and have a good time, uh, when yeah. you can, yes. um, you know, one of the, one of regardless if you're recovering from something or just, dealing with everyday life um you know that's one of the great things about where technology is these days uh sort of anyone can do anything um if you have the drive and, and you're persistent so and you are persistent i mean yeah it, it's, yeah you know. well 
Thank you. Yeah, that so the the show with Heather came about as a way to kind of um originally satisfy this this marketing course and then it was going to be a place to kind of hang out and then when the pandemic hit it shifted uh and became a way to support musicians um and now it's just kind of a, a way for Heather and I to to stay involved in the scene and have a good time and listen to good music and stuff like that so and there's a friendship from this as well yeah I mean she's become she's become a good friend um and we do speak like on the phone or on zoom uh even when we're not recording shows but uh but yeah it's it's interesting kind of how that's uh blossomed into a friendship no it's great I mean so hello Heather from the uh the uh, happy hour with Heather and guest uh podcast so I'm just being very nosy with your website here Andrew yes. so it's uh, andrewdaby.com and I had a question I wanted to ask you anyway because you have uh, lots of sex you have your writing you have the podcast you've interviewed interviews and publicity and you have your social media but there's one question I want to ask because I know some of your books or nearly all of them are on uh, Amazon what is and this is from an Irishman what was the leprechaun violence Ah, conjecture okay. and other stories what was that okay so <laughs> the so the leprechaun violence conjecture was the first short story that i had ever published right um, and then i decided the first collection of short stories i released i decided to call that the leprechaun violence conjecture and other stories um so when i was in grad school I had the idea, uh, and this was even something that I, had, I, I had been a theater major in college, uh, and I had written a, a one-act play that got performed at the school I went to. Um, and at the time, I remember thinking, sort of how idealistic I was, uh, that I would only spend my time working on projects that I was really passionate about. Uh, so I remember thinking, I would never write the script for one of the leprechaun films um you know the, the horror movies i'm sure oh, yes with jennifer Aniston, was that the one yeah she's it yeah, yeah she's in the so i remember thinking at the time they they'd already written like six or seven of them and i remember thinking to myself wow this what what would it take for me to write one of these movies um so then the story came about because it's kind of like uh it's kind of like Faust. It's sort of like, what would you do or or what would it take in your life for you to have written, you know, the fifth Leprechaun movie, for example? Okay. Um, you know, and that's why so I, in the story, it's it's a question and answer format. It's, it's two guys that are having a conversation and one of them says, well, let me tell you about the Leprechaun violence conjecture. And then he has different levels. So he says, on level one, you're probably in your early 20s. You're really idealistic. You would never think to write one of these movies, even if you were given the chance. Uh, and then it sort of, you know, it just keeps going. And as you get older and you become more materialistic and you learn how the world works, you would kind of sell your soul to, to have the opportunity to write, you know, one of those movies. It's brilliant because I mean you've, you've so many, but it's very it's so for somebody like myself anyway because I'm kind of boring when I read stuff. I just read usually read biographies and stuff like that. But your 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 books that you're writing, I mean, they're so random. Is that the way you'd like it? Yeah, I, you know, 
I, when I went, uh, so I went back to school for writing. Um, and when I was going back to school, I was very much somebody that thought they would write crime fiction. Right. Um, because that at the time, that's what I was, you know, I think, uh, like the Jack Reacher books had just come out. Right. Um, and I had, I had already been, been a big fan of, um, you know, there was a, a Spencer for Hire by Robert Parker. So I, I was very much under the impression that I was going to begin writing a series like that. And then when I got to graduate school, it was much easier to write short stories uh, because, you know, you could just give somebody three pages and they could read the whole thing instead of giving them 75 pages of a 200 page thing. And then they'd have to remember the order and what had happened. Um, and it was much easier to write more pop culture based things in three pages. Right. So I sort of shifted and I, you know, I, I'm, I'm somebody who has like a natural uh, reserve of obscure references to make or, you know, topics that are crazy or uh, things, you know, I, ha I have a, I have a, 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 a memory for, like, for example, right now, I could tell you the last 50 years of Best Picture Oscar winners off the top of my head. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so things like, so the Leprechaun Violence Conjecture came from having a, an affinity for pop culture and uh, being able to sort of pull from that. Um, I wrote another story a while back about um, Superman getting drunk at a bar and discovering that bizarro superman is now dating his ex-girlfriend uh and just <laughs> sort of thinking about thinking about a scenario like that um you know so so a lot of the early stories that i've published um came from just what you know these sort of scenarios right. um i remember when i was in uh, macau reading about a, a zoo in japan that would run drills in case there was another earthquake uh, and animals escape from their from their enclosures. They had zookeepers dress up in animal costumes and simulate an escape um, to so that they could train. So I kept thinking, okay, well, what must it be like if you're a 25 year old and you're wearing a Tony the Tiger outfit and you're, <laughs> you're running around a zoo, you know, to to simulate an escape? Um, so sometimes I would just read these interesting things. Uh, and I would write, you know, based on that. Um, sometimes I would just want to refer to uh, a movie, um, you know, so it, it was easier in college to, to write something short that was much more pop culture based. And uh, it wasn't until within the last couple of years that I sort of returned back to writing longer, longer work. I mean, it's it's brilliant. I mean, all your website uh, information, any listeners that want to get in touch with uh, Andrew, I mean, he has some fascinating uh, titles here. He has The Vague, From Beyond, uh, Land of Illusions. Uh, there was one there that, where's my one? It was, wasn't Three Little Pigs, which was the one? It was, oh, The Accuracy of Third Eye Blind. I'm going to have a look at that one later on. But um, so where else then can our listeners, oh, Val Kilmer's Elbow. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> Just because I'm a big fan of Top Gun and Val Kilmer. Yeah, um, yeah, you know that. And what, what's has, that all about? <laughs> if you, well, if you've ever seen the movie Heat, 
Yep. Um, so Val Kilmer has a deformity <laughs> on his elbow from when he was shooting the film The Doors. Right. I think he he, he was crowd surfing and they dropped him and he broke his elbow. Um, so <laughs> yeah, so I I uh, wrote a story where the <laughs> I think the elbow comes the elbow uh, deformity starts talking to someone. Right. Um, <laughs> You know, just just crazy sort of things like that. Uh, yeah, the, ac- <laughs> the accuracy of Third Eye Blind. That I I read an article by uh, a great writer named Chuck Klosterman, who discussed how the album by Radiohead Kid A. He said if you listen to the lyrics, it predicts the events of 9/11. And I remember thinking. Is there an album that predicted the events of my life, for example? And I realized that uh, Third Eye Blind's debut album, if you take all the titles, uh, you I could essentially make them work. So I wrote a, 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 what's called a chapbook, which is like a short, you know, it's like a 20 page uh, book type thing, uh, just about how each title lined up with... Uh, with various events of my life. It's, it's, it's amazing. I mean, but I, I will be wondering about Val Kilmer's elbow later on. I'll be, that's on the Daily Drunk, so I'll be having a look at that as well. So where else then, uh, Andrew, can listeners get in touch with you if they want to get in touch? Are you on the uh, social well, media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the website's probably the best place because everything is there, um, including social media links. I'm, I usually, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and uh, Instagram, just as a, a Davy author. Um, and then the website, andrew-davy.com will have, uh, everything really from happy hour with Heather and guest to, um, to things that I've written, uh, even a contact, uh, page. So that's probably the best place. Well, I have to say, just, uh, listen to you there for the last hour, Andrew, you're an amazing person to chat to and, you know, great inspiration for other people, especially those, who may be going through a difficult time at the moment, um, either physically or or mentally. So uh, I'd like to thank uh, Andrew Davey for joining me on the Wellbeing and Choreographer podcast today. Thanks so much, Andrew. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate it.